All right. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. This is session seven of Lamarck Arthur class. Uh, we are plowing right along through this book, I would add, uh, having gotten... Golly, by the end of tonight's class, we're going to be fully 80 pages into this book, which is something, I gotta say. Uh, uh, yeah, we have plenty left, but lots of fun still, uh, still to go. Um, so anyway, tonight we're going to look at the royal wedding, uh, because of course, uh, you know, they didn't have all these... Uh, you know, fancy made-for-TV occasions uh, back in the Middle Ages. We did ex real exciting things uh, at royal weddings. <laughs> and uh, so we get to see one tonight. And uh, tonight's reading... So my... I, I should explain up front. My aspirations are to get up to but not including the Arthur and Akalon business. Um, so uh, I'm hoping to get through... The wonders around the wonders and marvels and quests appertaining unto the wedding of Arthur and Guinevere, and then uh, some of the subsequent adventures, including the departure of Merlin and Sir Kay's big day. Uh, so uh, that's um, um, uh, that's uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the goal for tonight. Now, Tarlonio, be careful here. Do not. Um, do not uh, 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 speak ill too quickly of the Lady Guinevere. Um, uh, Tony was just uh, 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 joking, you know, uh, how, uh, you know, how many minutes are the couple together before she starts cheating on him with Lancelot? Well, see, cheating is a strong word, right? Uh, and it's actually going to be, I will argue, quite some time before anything truly inappropriate happens. Uh, but, uh, anyway, okay. Um, so, yeah. All right, anyway, but we'll get there. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We will get a little bit more Guinevere in this episode than we will get until, uh, uh, much later when Guinevere becomes a, a more, uh, sort of, when we're getting the really central, uh, story of Arthur and Guinevere. Um, but, um, uh, until that, she's gonna, well... I've already mentioned, of course, that uh, King Arthur himself fades into the background. Um, but um, so is Guinevere going to for a while here. Uh, there will be plenty of Guinevere moments. These are some of the more uh, some of the more positive ones. So, okay. But let's jump back into things. So we've just finished the tragical story of Sir Balin and his brother Sir Balan, and uh, we are now returning to Arthur's court and the young where the young Gawain has just come and been knighted. Um, but uh, first, let's decide whom we're going to marry. Merlin asks him, right? Asks Arthur the question. Um, uh, well, I mean, Arthur says that he's interested in getting married. And so, following his lead, Merlin asks, says, uh, It is well done, said Merlion, that ye tak a wife, for a man of your bounty and noblesse shall not be without a wife. Now is there any, said Mer Merlion, that ye love more than another? Ye, said King Arthur, I love Guinevere, the kingest doctor of Lodegreon, of the land of Camelard. The which holdeth in his house the table round, that ye told me he had it of my father Uther. 
and this damosel is the most valiant and firest that I know that I can know living, or yet that ever I could find. Certes, said Merlion, as of her bounty and fireness, she is one of the firest on live. But, and ye loved her not so well as ye do, I shall find you a damsel of bounty and of goodness that should like you and please you, and your heart were not set. But thereas man's heart is set, he will be loth to turn. That is truth, said King Arthur. But Merlion warned the king covertly that Guinevere was not wholesome for him to talk to wife, for he warned him that Launcelot should love her, and she him again, and so he turned his tal to the adventures of the Sancria. Okay, uh, now that last paragraph, of course, is uh, very... Uh, man, Nancy, you are absolutely right uh, that uh, Merlin is being very tactful here, right? Um, uh, I love that second paragraph by Merlion there. Certainly, uh, yes, as to her uh, bounty, that is, you know, her, her goodness and generosity and her fairness, that is, her beauty, uh, she's one of the fairest on life. Yeah, you know, both for looks and for, you know, virtues. She's, yeah, no, she's a great pick and everything. Um, but uh, if you weren't really set on that one, I bet you I could find another that would do as well, right? But, you know... Uh, where your heart is set, there's nothing we can do, really. Um, uh, Carita, I, <laughs> yes, Carita says, Merlin thinks that rich men uh, must be in want of a wife. Mrs. Bennett would approve. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, Joe, certus, uh, it means, uh, like, certainly. Um, uh, that it's often used at the beginning of a statement, like, certus, uh, certainly, or of course, uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, uh, so <laughs> Tomas says Merlin isn't, isn't a, a wizard or a prophet, he's simply a spoiler. Yeah, except he doesn't ever spoil anything for good or for ill, right? Um, here we have him explaining the entire thing, right? Um, you know, okay, like, so it's, he's not just like, I am afraid that she might not be true to you or that this is going to turn out well for some reason. No, she's like, so she and Lancelot are going to have an illicit affair uh, and it's not going to be wholesome for you, right? But this is something we've seen him doing a lot, right? Um, And I'm still not really sure... I'm not sure how to handle Merlin. I'm really not. I'm not sure. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I say I'm not sure how to handle Merlin, I don't fully understand how we as readers are supposed to be reacting to Merlin, and more importantly, how characters in the story are meant to be reacting to Merlin. Um, So, for instance... Um, there's a part of me that wants to read Merlin in these early parts, kind of like, uh, I mean, we, we mentioned this a little bit before. They don't do this in Mallory, right? This doesn't happen. Um, but it's like the, it's like the asides to the audience in a Shakespeare play, right? It's like Iago or Richard III turning to the audience and explaining what he's about to do. 
right? Uh, telling them the truth that he's concealing from everybody else on stage, right? Um, so that we have some kind of insight into what's going to, you know, and there's a, there's a good reason for that, right? Um, you know, when Shakespeare does that, for instance, he is maneuvering us as the audience into a position, right, where we are seeing certain things and we are thinking certain things. He's establishing some, you know, some dramatic ironies that um, are going to set up the rest of the play so that we are... In a, we're, we're not just in the same position uh, as receivers of the story that the other people in the story are, right? We're, you know, the, the, the Arthur and the others who are actually going to perform all of these actions, you know, they're just kind of going through this and, and they don't know what's going to happen. We're not with them, right? Our, our, uh, 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 our knowledge situation is different, right? Our frames, our, our frame is different. Um, I'm tempted, therefore, to read Merlin as almost acting like an Arthurian aside, right? That the intended, that the primary intended audience of Merlin's statements are not the other characters in the book, but us, right? He wants us, he, Mallory, wants us to know in advance, right? that Lancelot and Guinevere are going to be a thing and that there's going to be unwholesomeness for Arthur's court associated with this. Just as he wanted us earlier to know that Mordred was going to be the, the enemy of Arthur, uh, brought about by Arthur's own action, right, in sleeping with his half-sister, and uh, and was going to lead to the destruction of the court. So that when Merlin, when, not Merlin, when uh, Mordred shows up, Right. We are supposed to be like, oh, God, it's the villain. Right. We know this. He wants to he's preparing us for this. He wants us to have these reactions, to know this stuff in advance, Um, just as we saw him constantly sort of seeding things for the quest of the Holy Grail right throughout the Balin episode. Um, Mike, a little bit like a Greek chorus in some ways. uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Jeffrey is saying, would it be fair to consider Merlin at this point in the story more a literary device as a narrator's aid more than an actual character? In some ways, I mean, he is a character. But i that's exactly sort of the, the thing that I'm exploring myself here, Jeffrey, is I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to read him that way. Because it's, if you don't, right, if, if we think that his primary audience for his statements is not us, right, but the other characters in the book exclusively, then it puts us in an awkward position, right? Because we have to assume that everybody else in the book generally is pretty stupid, right? I mean, Arthur knows everything. He's told, Merlin has told Arthur everything, right? If you marry Guinevere, she's going to have this relationship. So like, it's going to happen, right? And Mordred is going to be born and he's going to, and you're going to meet him here. And this is where the battle's going to be and everything else. I mean, he knows the whole story in advance. Um, and uh, he doesn't, with the one exception, right? The one exception being when he goes and tries to drown all the uh, the boys, right? To try to catch M- Mordred, which of course misses Mordred, uh, almost gets him, but 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 misses him. That's the only time we ever see Arthur acting on the prophecies of Merlin, on you know his predictions, very confident prediction, just spoilers about what's gonna what's gonna happen. Right. And we see many other people um, just 
simply ignoring it. Now, Tarlonio, I agree about Balin saying about, you know, taking the the adventure that God has ordained for you. Um, in Balin's case, we saw him kind of confronting that, right? He would be told this is what's going to happen. He'd have all kinds of reasons to suspect that it was coming, and he chose to face it, right? He chose to accept what was coming. Um, within the sort of the little subframe of the Balin story, we seem to see him, Mallory, uh, as a storyteller, beginning to kind of wrestle with this in ways that I don't see him doing with Arthur, specifically, right? Um, not very often. We will see, hopefully, before the end of tonight, one other occasion on which Arthur at least mentions it, right? Does not seem to just flat ignore the spoilers that Merlin is giving to him. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't know, um, I don't know exactly what, um, I don't know exactly how to construct it. I, I'm always, it seems to me that the answer is kind of somewhere in the middle. Merlin is meant to be taken as a character. I don't think that we can say he's merely a narrative tool, um, and yet his primary function seems to be as narrative tool. There seems to be, remember, the, the link between uh, sort of the role of Merlin as, 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 as story recorder, right? Um, Merlin as sort of the instrument of the retelling of these stories um, that, he, that, that Maori was already establishing. And so I, it seems to me kind of that he's, he's wanting to do both. Maori is wanting to do both. He's wanting to make these really clear signals um, to the readers and even give us as readers a sense of, I mean, there is a predestination that lies over this story. Of course there is, because everybody knows how it ends. That's always true of very famous stories that you're retelling. And don't forget, this is a super famous story in Mallory's time, right? Everybody knows the matter of Britain. Everybody knows the King Arthur stories. So, Everybody knows about the death of Arthur and how it ends. Um, so it's it, there is destiny to it, right? You can't escape it. It looms over the whole story, just like the fall of Troy does, right? If you're telling the story of the Trojan War, there's that same sense of destiny. I mean, you, 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 you know what's going to happen, right? Troy is going to fall. It's going to happen. You can't, you can't escape that, right? Um, nor do you want to escape that. It's part of the framework that you're operating in, and the same with Maori, right? And so Merlin seems to be, again, in one sense, a sort of um, uh, a voice for that as well. That you know, He is like the sense of awareness within the narrative of the destiny of the narrative, right? A reminder not only to the readers, but even in a sense, a reminder to the other people in the story. Y'all know we don't have a choice, right? We've got, we've got, uh, we've got the, the script that we have to follow. Um, I was, uh, uh, <laughs> I was reminded of Merlin, uh, Maori's Merlin when I was watching, uh, we do, um, in my family, usually on Friday nights, we do a family movie night, uh, which my wife and I call compulsory cinematic education, where we go through and we make our kids watch like movies that we feel like they should have watched, right? Uh, even which we usually have to force them to do. Um, 
And uh, so recently we watched the Muppet movie because I'd never seen the, the original Muppet movie before. So we watched the Muppet movie. And I was reminded of, of Merlin's Mallory when we were watching the Muppet movie. And uh, uh, Fozzie pulls out the script uh, to the film. And of course, Dr. Teeth finds them later on because he's like, oh, yeah, we, we read the script. Um, like that's Merlin, right? He's the guy who's going around with the screenplay in his pocket. Uh, and um, yeah, that's um, uh, I, I, th- that's that's very much uh, a sense that you get uh, with um, uh, with Merlin here. Um, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. Jeffrey Ward points out it would be like a modern viewer being worried about how Hamilton or Titanic ends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One would hope you would know. Right, exactly. Um, yes, yes. And of course, like in Hamilton, for instance, the heavy, all the dual stuff that happens early on, right, is, uh, is sort of obviously looking forward to the moment that we all know is coming, right, at the end of the, at the, end of the play. Yeah, there is a lot of that. Um, but um anyway yeah um <laughs> so Ben and Melvin said I was reminded of Mallory's Merlin while watching the Muppet movie is one of the most corey things I've ever said yeah possibly possibly Carita says that she'd watch the heck out of a Muppet version of the story of King Arthur I totally agree the Muppets absolutely should do an Arthurian story why have they not done that how do, they, how do they do the Christmas Carol but they don't do King Arthur come on now uh, or like the Fall of Troy I'd watch the heck out of a Muppet Fall of Troy, too. Come, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, anyway, one of the things, and I, I'm hesitant to go here in my reading, but it's worth mentioning because I don't think, although I don't like talking this way, um... I, I don't think it can be totally avoided either. Mallory t- improves a lot as a storyteller, right? I mean, by the time we get to the end, we're going to see Mallory telling a much better story than he does at the beginning. I mean, this is a long process, right? And he learns a lot about storytelling over the course of writing this stuff. And as I say, I to me, saying like, well, I think that he just like was trying to do something and doing it uh, badly. I mean, it's a perfectly viable option, right? It's got to be true some of the times. But it always feels like a cop-out. I always hate just simply ascribing something that I find awkward or that I don't understand and say, like, oh, well, this is probably just the author being clumsy. Um, because, I mean, it might be true, but it's very likely not to be true. So, um, uh, anyway, I... Um, uh, I, yeah, um, as I say, I generally am very, am very resistant to that kind of reading, but uh, it does feel like that, right? It feels like Mallory here with Merlin is trying to do a really delicate thing, but he doesn't really have the chops for it, right? He's trying to do both. He's trying to do the character who does sort of speak to the audience, right? You know, a kind of almost like a frame narrator, 
right? It's almost what he's looking for in Merlin's character, perhaps. Uh, somebody who can fill us in uh, and lead us to know what we can expect and kind of frame the story for us. But he also wants to make him a character because Merlin is a character, right? Um, so he uh, sort of does both, and, and but yet uh, it doesn't really sort of fully... Um, it doesn't really fully work. But like I say, I, I, I dislike, um, I dislike that kind of reading cause it always feels like a cop out. Um, but, but it might also be true. I don't know. Um, we'll come back to this later on when we will, um, um, we'll come back to this later on <clears throat> when we get, um, to that other example. I said, there are two places I think where we can see Arthur, actually responding in what seems like a a sort of a logical way to one of Merlin's predictions, right? The first was, okay, uh, if the kingdom is doomed by this child, let's get rid of the child. Now, again, anyone who's like Red Oedipus knows that's unlikely to work out, but still, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying it's an admirable move on his part. Uh, It's, it's the, you know, I I said at the time that was like the shadiest King Arthur's ever going to get in the entire book. But again, it's, it's a response. It's some kind of response, right? To what Merlin says instead of like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for telling me the future. I'm now going to pretend I didn't hear that. Um, There will be one other time and we'll, I will hope to get to it tonight, but in the interest of getting to it tonight, let's, um, let's keep, uh, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> on uh, I see on the Twitch channel they're now they're now starting to do the casting uh, for the uh, for the Muppet King Arthur, uh, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> no, I really don't think you can cast Gonzo as King Arthur and Camilla the Chicken as Guinevere. I, I really don't think that's going to work. Um, Nancy thinks that Gonzo is obviously Merlin, which I think would be great. Uh, Gonzo as Merlin would be fantastic uh, uh, casting there, I think. Um, Yeah. Uh, Anyway, okay, sorry. Um, (laughs) No, 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 no. No, I'm not going there. I'm totally done with that conversation. We're moving on. (laughs) <laughs> we've got like a whole bunch of uh, uh, lots of really good uh, suggestions Devra thinks or I'm really missing out that Camilla would make a great Guinevere um, uh, yeah possibly possibly they'd have to play multiple roles right I mean you know they'd have to uh, you know one one would be tempted of course just to cast Fozzie as Sir Kay but that seems a little easy doesn't it um Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm so I'm so done with this conversation right now. Let's uh, let's 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 uh, we can continue this like on Twitter or something. But um, uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, moving on. As I was saying, let's uh, get to the wedding. So at the wedding, everybody knows that at the king's wedding, you can come to the king and request a boon, and he will grant it. Right. Uh, so uh, imagine his surprise when a cowherd, right, this peasant dude, comes into the court and requests that his son be made a knight, right? Very, very peculiar. Um, 
It is a great thing thou askest of me, said the king. What is thy name? said the king to the poor man. Sir, my name is Aris, the cowherd. Whether cometh this of thee, other else of thy son? said the king. Nay, sir, said Aris, this desire cometh of my son, and not of me. For I shall tell you, I have thirteen sonnets, and all they will fall to what labor I put them, and will be reaped glad to do labor. But this child will not labor for nothing that my wife and I may do, but always he will be shouting or casting darties, and glad for to see battiles and to behold connectes, and always die and nicked he desireth of me to be mad knicked. What is thy name? said the king unto the young man. Sir, my name is Tor. Than the king beheld him fast, and saw he was a passingly well-visaged, and well-mad of his years. Well, said King Arthur unto Aris the cowherd, go fetch all thy sonnes before me, that I may see them. And so the poor man did, and all were sharpened much like the poor man, but Torres but Torah was not like him, neither in shop, nay in countenance, for he was much more than any of them. All right. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Arthur Dud is a verb there, yes. As past tense of did, obviously, yes, yes. Um, Stephen, yes, it's true that shooting and throwing darts don't really have anything to do with knightly battles, as knights never use missile weapons of any kind. Um, The point is just his natural orientation towards martial exercises of all kind. Because, you see, as a peasant, he would have access to bows, right? That was a sport that was okay for peasants. They were encouraged uh, to to shoot bows in England. So... um, you know, so he he really took to that. You know, he really liked shooting just because it had something to do um, with uh, something to do with combat, right? Um, yeah, Veronica is interested in the association of good looks with being high-born. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ares the cowherd is not handsome, right? Um, uh, so he lines up his um, oh his noble visage. Uh, his visage is his face, so uh, he has a he has a he's passingly well visaged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so there's something strange going on here. Um, we get several strong hints about what's what's going on here, right? Our first hint is that this guy won't labor, right? The kid won't labor. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? Any of you, especially any of you who have teenage children, are probably thinking, wait, does this mean that my son also is destined to be a knight? Because he won't set himself to any labor that I set him to either. This is a good sign, it turns out. That's fantastic. Um, No, 
<laughs> no, uh, that's not what it means. So you have to understand the framework here. Um, uh, everything has its natural place in the order. You have to remember that I've talked about the estates, right? Did I talk about the estates before? The three estates? There are three. Three, okay, society is broken into three estates. Well, men, anyway, are broken into three estates, right? The oratores, those who pray. Uh, the bellatories, those who fight. And the laboratories, those who work, right? I, I've talked, I know I talked about this some um, with the whole second estate and the importance of the second estate, right? The estates, this is not a class thing, right? Not in the modern sense. Um, within the medieval worldview, your birth in this way, like, it's not even just a calling in some sense, this sort of external, um, it's part of your nature. It's not even, uh, like your genetic predilection or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, you, for a, a peasant, the son of peasants, right? Um, like for one of, like for Ares, the cowherd's 11th son, right? Um, for him to aspire to be a knight, right? To have the, uh, you know, physical capability and the inclination and for him to be like, I really want to be a knight. Um, you know, like that old Heath Ledger movie, right? The Knight's Tale Heath Ledger movie about, you know, the, 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 it's such a modern movie, right? Oh my goodness. So, so modern era. So absolutely alien and uncomprehending of anything medieval in that film. Um, but, uh, anyway, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a fun movie. It was a fun movie. I actually enjoyed that movie, but, uh, it is a thoroughly modern film, right? Uh, thoroughly, thoroughly modern sensibilities. In fact, uh, remember what I was saying last week about, you know, how in the Middle Ages they, like, shamelessly dressed everybody up like, you know, high Middle Ages folks? Um, that film is the modern version of that, right? Where they did most of the costuming, not all, but most of the costuming, kind of like medieval, but they made them all modern people uh, in every other way. Like, you know, uh, sort of their... Um, a man can change his stars, Deborah. That's exactly it. Uh, I actually remember facepalming the first time somebody said that in the film. And I'm like, oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, again, not a criticism. Fun movie. Uh, but that is exactly that is exactly what the Middle Ages did not believe and it's not just that they were like they believe that low class people should always be kept in their place it's not like that it's like being a bird or a fish you know like yeah it's conceivable that you i mean you can imagine a peasant who really really wants to be a knight and is really cut out to be a knight you can imagine that just like you can imagine a bird who just chooses never to fly right it just goes about on its little legs all the time and is like, I'm just a biped going about on my legs and I have no interest in flight, right? Um, Again, you'll notice what he's emphasizing is not, it's not that the kid is lazy, right? Um, 
all of his other kids, right? All they will fall to what labor I put them and will be reeked glad to do labor, right? They take to it. It's what they do, right? They are third estate boys, right? Working is in their blood. It's in their genes. Um, they, uh, that's what they do, right? Just as a knight who is born of knights. If you are, this is why it matters if you're of noble blood of father's side and mother's side, right? Remember, they're always talking about that, right? Um, it matters because it's about who you are, right? You have to be like a knight to the bone. You have to be one of the bellatories. It's not about social class. I mean, I mean, okay, it is about social class in one sense, right? If we look back on it from our point of view, we can certainly project the modern concept of social class onto it, but that's not how they thought of it. Um, now, I'm not saying that, of course, this is actually how things worked, and I'm not saying that there are never any exceptions, and I know you can go through and find examples of people who rose out of the yeomanry uh, to become nobles and everything that happens all the time, but that isn't the point. It's The point is it's not the conception. This is not the worldview, right? This is not... Th- that that's not part of the mythology that stories like this operate within. Okay. If you want to understand the way that this world works, think of it like a mythology, right? Um, they almost thought of it like that. Um, if you think of it, but you've got to understand this, this mythology, we, we know we, we, we it's obvious, right? It's not just obvious in like this guy looks nothing like his dad, right? Uh, or that the really amusing lineup of these like you know <laughs> these other like ugly you know bow legged kids, his other twelve sons, and then he's like his one oldest son who looks like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, right? It's it's not just the kind of joke that. Uh, it would look like to a uh, uh, to a uh, to a modern side, uh, to, f- from the modern perspective, long before he does the lineup. Right, Arthur's just confirming by asking for the lineup. He's confirming what he already knows. Right, if you've got a kid who is the apparently the son of a peasant who will not do work. Right, who doesn't take to it and instead is completely fixated on combat and becoming a knight. That is presumptive evidence that this kid is from knightly lineage. I mean, you are who you are. Uh, again, bird, fish, right? I mean, it's just like you, 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 you swim or you fly. It's not about your choice. You know, it's not about uh, being kept down or anything. Anything, and any more than the birds are oppressing the fish by making them swim. Um, yeah, interesting. Bruce and uh, Carita both were reminded of uh, 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 Jesse bringing all of his sons before Samuel um, uh, uh, in this moment, right? With King, with uh, with David. But of course, it's it's in the end, it's not like that, right? Um, because of course, David is the is the youngest, and although he is ruddy and of a good kind of a fair countenance, um, it's um, it's not. Uh, um, it's not quite the, it's, it's not the same, right? Uh, and the emphasis in that story uh, is that man only looks on the outward uh, surface, but God sees the heart, right? And that's, uh, uh, that's the important lesson there. Here, 
the outward surface tells the story, right? It's all you need to confirm um, what you um, uh, what you already are pretty are pretty sure of. Um, yes, Jeffrey, the estates are God ordained. Absolutely, the estates are God ordained. This is part of the order of creation. Um, it's it's how the world works. That's absolutely how the world works. And everything has its natural inclination. Remember, this is in Boethius, too, right? Everything has its natural inclination to return to its home, to return to that place where it wants to go. Um, just as Boethius gave the poetic illustration, Lady Philosophy gives the poetic illustration of a, a caged bird, right, who might be a, a, a sort of a happy pet, right, but as soon as the cage door is left open, it will fly off into the woods, right, because that's what's where it's that's where its true home is that's where it desires to be um tor watching knights on the other side of the fence jousting right uh you know standing there leaning on the spade that he doesn't really use very well right watching knights is exactly like that right longing to be where he belongs um yeah yeah um Yes, James, that is exactly what Balin said to the lady with the sword. Um, the damsel, the second worst damsel in England. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, about not looking on the outward appearance. Yeah, which is why that the Jesse and David and Samuel moment was already on my head, or on my head, in my head, on my mind. Uh, one of those two things. Uh, because, uh, because yeah, we, 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 we were already getting that before, right, from, uh, from, from Sir Balin. Um, uh, Stephen, yeah, so Tor is a knight who is born into the wrong family. Sort of. Well, we eventually get the explanation, right? And obviously it's Merlin who explains what happened here. I shall tell you. That's like Merlin's saying, right? I shall tell you. Uh, that's Merlin in a, in a nutshell right there. This poor man, Ares, the cowherd, is not his father, for he is no sib to him. For King Pellinor is his father. I suppose not, said the cowherd. Well, fetch thy wife before me, said Merlion, and she shall say not nigh. Anon the wife was fet forth, which was a fire hoose wife. And there she answered Merlion full womanly. And she told the king and Merlion that one she was a maid, and went to milk her kine, there met with me a stern knicked, and half beforce he had my maidenhood. And at that time he begat my son Tor, and he took away from me my greyhound that I had that time with me, and said he would keep the greyhound for my love. Ah, said the cowherd, I went it had not be thus, but I may believe it well, for he had never no touches of me. Um... Yeah, okay. So, first of all, I'm going to make no apologies for King Pelinor or for Mallory in this passage. Um, there is, there's just no two ways about the fact that there, this is, I don't see any disapproval, really, in the text for what King Pelinor did here. 
King Pelinor sees beautiful peasant maid milking her cows in the field and half by force, half by force, rapes her and begets Tor on her. And then afterwards, everybody, like the woman, her husband, King Arthur, everyone's like, oh, that King Pelinor, right? Oh, well, that explains it, right? And the husband, notice he's totally fine with this. He's like, oh, well, I didn't think that was so, but okay, right? Uh, and it's the less of a problem for me, he says. Um, and, uh, you know, this like this sort of this sort of solves everything. Um it's yeah. Veronica says, "What is half by force?" Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> several people are, are are really upset about the stealing the dog. Also, afterwards, right? I will rape you, get you pregnant, and then steal your dog. Um, I do, Deborah, I don't understand the Greyhound. I really don't. Um, I mean, it makes it sound like a love token, but I mean. What king does this? I shall take this peasant's dog uh, to remember her by. Uh, it's like, dude, you've given her something to remember you by, right? Uh, I, and you know, anyway, I, I don't, I don't know about the dog stealing. I don't understand the dog stealing. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, notice what's going to happen right after this. Right at the wedding, we're gonna get hounds and pe- a knight who's gonna pick up a lady. Right, so there's gonna be there's gonna be a raptus. There's gonna be a rape that happens right there in the court when a knight sweeps up a lady and drags her off screaming. Uh, and there's gonna be another guy who comes in and 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 notice that's the one that King Pelnor sent after. Right, the knight who runs off with the lady. Um, and this other knight comes and he seizes a, a hound, right? A bratchet, a female hound, and takes it away, right? And I'm like, so I mean, the similarities there, it, I, it's hard for me not to see the perils. I don't know what to do with them. Um, but I I, I don't... Uh, yeah, so Patricia, I don't really know. The half-by-force thing. Okay, so let's come back to the half-by-force thing. I don't want to duck that. Um, one possible reading of it is that it means that she consented, but doesn't want to admit that she consented, right? Um, if she, because, I mean, think of the position that she's in, right? If she says, so this, like, young knight slash king stopped by one day as I was going out to milk my cow, and he was like, hey, baby, and I was like, hey there, you big hunk of knightly man. And and we were like, then one thing led to another and I was totally into it. And uh, she doesn't want to admit that in front of her husband, right? But at the same time, she doesn't want to be like, oh, uh, yeah, oh, he was terrible. And he completely, and I fought every inch of the way because King Pelinor is standing right there, right? So she kind of, uh, uh, half by force, right? Uh, to try to kind of, I don't know. Uh, I, I could see that reading that she's being politic here, trying to minimize the offense to either party. Right. Um, I mean, in its way, it's a kind of a cunning thing to say in that way. Right. Cause she can say to her husband, like, dude, I said it was by force. Right. And she can say to King Pelinor, dude, I said it was only half by force. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Is this, uh, 
James is wondering, is it considered normal for a king to take any woman he sees? Um, it's obviously not considered abnormal, right? Um, I mean, we, we see, we've seen things be condemned, right? The uh, desire of King Uther to have ado with the Duchess of Cornwall against her will was clearly bad, right? Um, she was not into him and she fled, right? Because she didn't want that to get ugly. Um, and I, I, I think that Uther's desire is not great there, though it works out for him in the end and for her in a sense. Um, with Arthur, remember with Arthur, we had this same debate, right? You know, two beautiful women come to his court, uh, whom he has the hots for. He sleeps with both of them with one of them. It seems to be fine, right? He begets another, uh, bastard knight who becomes the knight of the round table and everybody's happy, just like with Sir Tor. Right. Um, and then he, on the other one, he begets, who happens to be his half sister. He begets Mordred. Um, I, you know, it's really hard to see exactly where the condemnation lies from within the frame of the text, right? And again, my problem, and, and I say problem purely from a modern sensibility standpoint, um, I don't see any condemnation here of King Pelinor's action. Nobody seems shocked. Nobody seems appalled by how he treated that woman, right? The only thing that needs to be resolved is what happens with the kid, right? It turns out that this kid is the son of a king. That's why he's acting like he was. Of course it is, right? It explains everything. And so by knighting him and recognizing him and, and King Pelinor recognizing him as his son and bringing him in and eventually before the end of today's reading, making him a knight of the round table, everything is resolved. Everything is happy, right? Even the cowherd, even the husband, right? is fine with it, doesn't seem to make any objections of any kind. Um, I, I, I don't, um, yeah. Um, yeah, Jeffrey is wondering if the half by force thing might be Mallory sparing, uh, both Pelinor and the mother's honor. So it's again, that like, um, sort of, halfway point, but from another perspective, right? If Mallory says he raped her completely by force, then that's bad. Uh, for, I, I mean, that you'd have to condemn that. Everyone would have to condemn that. Um, but if, uh, if uh, he says it wasn't at all by force and she was perfectly willing, then Sertor's mom is of questionable moral character, right? So, Jeffrey, I can I can see that as well. Um, by the way, one thing that's um, there is, of course, another story that is sort of looming in the background here that has been un um, mentioned uh, and should be mentioned, um, and that's Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale, right? Um, Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale uh, is about a young knight who does exactly this, right? He sees 
uh, a, a, a beautiful woman and he rapes her uh, uh, by very force, Chaucer says, right? So the wife of Bath emphasizes that it is 100% non-consensual uh, what this knight does to this other woman. And he is condemned to death um, in Arthur's court. It's an Arthurian, it's explicitly an Arthurian story. This is an Arthurian knight who rapes a woman by the side of the road and is condemned to death. Um, and then eventually, you know, it's there's more to the story than that, of course. But the point is, the premise of that story is that that kind of action is outrageous. Um, but again, no one seems to be outraged. Marilyn, you're, you're right, and Deborah too. Um, she's not married at the time. She was. That's why she emphasizes, one, she was a maid, right? Um, so the, he wasn't doing this to someone's wife, and this seems to be why uh, Ares the cowherd is fine with it. Right. Because it was it was before they were married. And, and uh, you know, so I guess that makes it a, a, well better. I don't know. Um, but like I said, I this is um, I can't um, I can't uh, I can't it's, I, I, I can't defend this. Right. I mean, I I don't. There's. I don't know of any way to make this story palatable from a modern perspective, because I don't think it is. Um, everybody, we are, we are, I think we are being asked to, to believe that this is, this is just, it's, it's okay. Right. Um, and, um, and I don't think it's okay. <laughs> I'm, this story makes me super uncomfortable. But this is the worst in almost every other case. Whenever any outrage is done to ladies or any anything which is actually sexual violence is almost always condemned. Um, it's kind of a big deal in this story. Um, but not here. Uh, not here. Here, this just seems to be like a boys being boys uh, kind of thing. Karita, I have to think that it's, uh, it makes a difference that she's not noble. Yeah, exactly. Marilyn is asking the same thing. I think so. Um, it's one thing, uh, to, you know, force yourself upon a lady. It's a different thing to force yourself upon a peasant woman. I think, but again, we have very few other precedents for this kind of thing. Um, uh, and ex that's exactly, David Erbach, uh, what I was just thinking. I, I do not think in the text that there is there are any other cases of... I think this is the only such case we get. Um, every other instance of sexual violence or potential sexual violence um, in the book, it's going to be with... Um, it's going to be with, with ladies. I think that's almost always true. Maybe there's another example that I'm forgetting, but I don't think so. Um, yeah. Brianna says it's, uh, there's strangely far more ladies being, being beheaded than raped, uh, in these, in these tales. Yes. That's a bigger problem, actually. Yes. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, an outbreak of, uh, a feminine decapitation, um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
David is wondering, is it possible that the story of Tor came from a different source and thus treats the matter differently? Maybe. I don't know. That doesn't seem to me like it would necessarily explain this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Carita points out that the idea that uh, poor women can't really be raped because they're presumably sexually loose anyhow is kind of still a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the whole situation kind of smacks of that, doesn't it? Um, uh, you know, she's a... Even now, she's a fair housewife, right? It's many years later. Um, but back when she was a maid, right, she was really attractive, and there she is milking her cows, and and he meets her, and, you know, there you go. Oops. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, that does seem to be the implication, though it's not it's not something that's really talked about. If you think about this for a second, think about the bad behavior or lack of virtue that's associated with with peasants, right? Villainy, right? Think of the significance of that's what that's what a villain is as a peasant, right? Um, all of those moral insults that are uh, sort of class terms, right? That are freighted that way. Um, to act like a peasant is to act shamefully if you're a knight, right? Um, you know, to be guilty of low behavior in that way. Um, uh, you don't see, I don't think we see, I'll be interested now to see if we do see, as we move forward, a similar thing with women. When a woman acts uh, in a sexually licentious manner, right? Um, a loose woman would be associated with acting like a peasant, just like a, 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 a treacherous, villainous, a, you know, non-virtuous knight is acting like a villain, right? Is acting like a peasant. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't see that. In fact, to me, one of the really interesting, um, uh, one of the interesting phrases to me in this whole passage is, uh, she answered Merlin full womanly, which seems a compliment, right? Full womanly means what? Forthrightly, I think. Womanly seems to be a compliment, which is kind of interesting, actually, um, especially in her, especially um, when, uh, especially when, because she's a lower class woman. Um, yeah, well, Bruce, exactly. It sounds like a parallel to manly when used as a compliment, right? Um, yeah. I don't know what else that word womanly there is supposed to mean. It's supposed to connote there. Um, but it certainly sounds like a compliment. Um, and in context, it seems to say that like she, you know, spoke forthrightly and honestly and, and like owned up to everything. Um, you know, she didn't try to hide it. She didn't try to, you know, run away. I mean, there seems to be courage and honesty being praised in her by calling her full womanly? I mean, maybe I'm misreading that. 
Um, but that does not sound to me like an insult at all. Um, and that's the thing. Again, it's part of it's. I don't. This passage is is. I mean, it's. You can certainly use it as an example of medieval anti-feminism, but it's an unusual example of medieval anti-feminism. Normally, medieval anti-feminism tends to manifest itself in like this, you know, writer, this kind of boys club between the writer and the reader, right? Like, we're all men here and we all know how women are, right? Uh, and like the, you know, medieval anti- anti-feminism tends to be like, you know... But we, but we men, we all know that women are unreliable and sexually voracious and and uh, you know dishonest and everything else, right? You know, I mean, that, that's that tends to be how it goes. That's not how this goes, right? Um, um, exactly, Nancy. It's not usually subtle at all. Um, and this, if full womanly is meant as an insult, there that would be an extraordinarily subtle form of anti-Semitism in that way, right? Um, It just, that doesn't, it doesn't sound like that at all. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that's, um, I think that that's really, I think that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I'll be interested to see. So one of the things I'm going to be looking for is I'm going to be looking for that word womanly being used again in that way to see if we can understand it a little bit better. And I'm also going to be looking to see if any ladies are ever going to get insulted, uh, by being called, by suggesting that their loose sexual morals make them like unto a low class woman. Um, we'll see. Anyway. All right. That's plenty of time on this passage, one of my least favorites in all of Mallory, but, uh, uh, and it's harder because it's kind of funny, right? I mean, it's, it is kind of a little bit funny and clearly he found it funny. Um, but that's one of the most uncomfortable things in the world, isn't it? When somebody tells a joke that is a really uncomfortable joke and you're like, oh man, awkward. Okay. Well, let's move on. So... As uh, Guinevere's dowry... Oh, Tatches. Yeah, sorry. We had a question, language question. Tatches. Uh, he, uh, ha- going back for a second. Uh, he never had no Tatches of me. Um, I, I never... No characteristics. No Tatches. No no touches. Like He, he wasn't like me at all, uh, is what he's saying. He's like, well, he never was much like me, I gotta say. Um, so he didn't think this was true, Ares is saying. But now that you tell me, it kind of explains a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. Guinevere brings with her as her dowry, the round table, along with a hundred knights on the round table, which is pretty good. Um, so, uh, the round table, which was given to, uh, uh, to Leodegrance by, um, uh, Uther, right? Arthur has mentioned. Uh, so this is in a sense, the recovery of, the royal property of King Uther, right? So there's, uh, it's not just, I got this off my father-in-law uh, as a hand-me-down, but rather uh, there's a kind of restoration of the kingship here, which also, by the way, tends to give the um, wedding with uh, uh, 
you know, the wedding between Arthur and Guinevere, another kind of predestined thing, right? I mean, yeah, Guinevere might not be wholesome for him, and this might not be a very good match in some ways, but on the other hand, like, the round table, right? There it is. I mean, it's got to be the right thing to do, right? Or else he wouldn't have the round table. So again, there's this uh, sort of narrative predestination about it as well, right? Um yeah, Nancy, exactly. I don't think that this is a it's not about the furniture so much. It's about the it's about the tradition. There is some there is clearly uh, you see, it's the first thing that he mentions, right, about her dad. Right. Oh, he's the one who has the round table, the one that you said that my father Uther gave to him. Right. So the fact that this came from Uther and seems to have been some kind of symbol uh, for Uther's court that was never mentioned back in the Uther section. Um Definitely, yeah. So I don't think it's just about like the concept, like, hey, let's build a table, and hey, let's make it round. Wouldn't that be novel and fun? Uh, no, it's about uh, it's about it's about tradition. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so he 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 he's 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 trying to fill the rest of the round table, right? And so he asks, there are these two seats that are void. Uh, that nobody's supposed to sit in. What is the cause, said King Arthur, that there is two places void in the sieges? That means the chairs, by the way, the sieges, the seats. Sir, said, by the way, I was so confused by that for like a year. <laughs> I was reading this. For, I remember being confused. Like, why is he talking about sieges? I don't understand. Anyway, sorry. Um, Sir, said Merlion, there shall no man sit in no places, but they that shall be most of worship. But in the siege perilous, there shall never man sit but own. And if there be any so hardy to do it, he shall be destroyed. And he that shall sit therein shall have no fellow. And therewith Merlion took King Pellinore by the hand, and in that own hand next and and in that unhand next the two sages and the sage perilous he said in open audience this is your plus for best are ye worthy to sit therein of any that here is try to forget about the dog stealing and thereat had sir gawain great envy and told geharis his brother yonder knecht is put to great worship which grieveth me sore for he slew our father king lot therefore i will slay him said gawain with a, with a sword that was set me, that is passing trenchant. Ye shall not so, said Geharis, at this time, for as now I am but your squire, and when I am mad knicked, I will be avenged on him. And therefore, brother, it is best to suffer till another time, that we may have him out of court, for and we do so, we shall trouble this high-faced. Okay, right, all right, so... um. Yeah, Bruce, Arthur is uh, scraping to find 48 knights. Yeah, there are 150 seats at the round table. And he inherits 100 knights uh, and has to fill the other uh, seats and has a certain amount of trouble doing it, right? Um, This is early days in Arthur's court, right? This is one of the reasons this is a really big deal. Um, uh, Okay, so um, we have... um, James says, I thought the whole point of the round table was that no one was above anyone else. No, no, that's a modern rationalization of the round table. Uh, I love that. Uh, um, 
that's uh, the Arthur makes a speech about that in the movie Excalibur, doesn't he? Right. And I know that Sean Connery makes a speech about that in the first night movie. Um, you know, no head, no foot. Right. Yeah. No, that's not uh, that's not it. Um, there is definitely precedence in the round table. There are the two special seats. Right. Uh, there's so there's this there's the there's the sort of special seat um, in which th- the only the one will sit who is like pretty much the best night ever. And then there is the siege perilous in which only the greatest night. There's only one night who will ever sit in that chair. Um, And anybody else who tries to sit in that chair is going to die. Right. The siege perilous. You don't dare to sit in the siege perilous unless you are the knight that has no fellow. And everybody know who's that, who's that is, right? Who sits there? Whose seat is that? Whose seat is the Siege Perilous? Come on, you got to pay attention to Merlin, right? He's already spilled this already. Galahad. Galah- Lancelot gets the other one. So the two seats that are left open are for Lancelot and Galahad, right? Lancelot is going to get the seat of the one who is pretty much the best, uh, the most of worship, right? But he does not get the Siege Perilous. Galahad gets the Siege Perilous. Um, so the, the, the Siege Perilous is only going to get sat in once, there will only be one day in which the round table is complete and has 150 knights sitting around it. Um, and that is the day that Galahad comes <clears throat> uh, to the court. Um, anyway, uh, so... Yeah, actually kind of surprising Merlin doesn't spill that again right here. He usually reminds us when we come around to things like that. Oh, and needless to say... Uh, gold letters, the seat that names of the knights appear in gold letters on the back of their seat, right? Because, uh, you know, Merlin. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, Korea, this is a really big table. Absolutely. Try to imagine how large this table must be to have 150 seats around it. Um, uh, it is a very enormous table. Now, Look at what we're seeing with Gawain and Geharis down here. And now I am afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that our recent experience with King Pelinor and the whole raping peasant women and then stealing their dogs thing might slant our reading inappropriately here, right? Because when we see King Pelinor, the peasant rapist and dog stealer, uh, being led to the third highest seat on the table and being said, oh, you are the one most deserving to sit in this seat. And then we immediately cut to Gawain and Geharis, who are looking on and saying, like, oh, I want that guy. I want to do down that guy. We, our sympathies might be with Gawain and Geharis, right? Uh, and we might, in fact, think that uh, uh, Pelinor has been elevated above his deserving. Um, I... Um, that's wrong. I'm sorry. That is the wrong. If you're thinking that you're reading it wrong, you've got to get over it, right? Uh, You're totally welcome to dislike Sir King Pelinor if you want to, but there can be no two ways about the fact that um, this text approves of King Pelinor, right? We are supposed to look at King Pelinor as 
the greatest knight in Arthur's court. Now, the greatest knight of of in Arthur's court of this generation, right? Um, the meeting between Arthur and King Pellinore by that fountain, right when Arthur first saw the questing beast. Um, uh, this is that was a, a portentous moment because one of the greatest of Arthur's knights was coming to was starting his relationship with him that day, right? Um, so. Yeah, he's he's uh, again. No, Krita, I'm not asking you to like him. I know the dog stealing. It's hard. I know. Try to suspend it, right, and accept what Mallory is telling you that he's a great and worthy knight. Because if you don't, you're going to miss what's happening with Gawain and Gaharis here. This is a bad sign, right? When Sir Gawain had great envy. At that, that's bad already. Envy is a mortal sin for a reason, right? It's it's a, one of the big seven. It's a big deal, right? Um, yonder Knecht is put to great worship, which grieveth me sore, for he slew our father, King Lot. Um, and therefore, he's sharpening up his sto- uh, sword, right, to make it passing trenchant, right, really sharp. Um, uh, he's ready for his sword to go snicker-snack. Uh, and he's ready to go galumphing back to the court with King Pelinor's head at some point in the near future. Um, and Geharis says, ye shall not so. Which at first, and I think this is deliberate, by the way. I think when Geharis says, ye shall not so, we're supposed to rise up and be like, yeah, Gawain, no, you shall not do that. Right? Gawain seems to be contemplating murder here. Murder, not not, I'm going to challenge him to a duel and say, you killed my father, prepared to die. I'm going to kill him. right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to murder this dude. And Geharis says, ye shall not so. And we as readers are probably, hopefully, saying, ye shall not so. Um, and then Geharis goes on, ye shall not so at this time. Because if you do now, I'll miss out. Because I'm only a squire. I'm not a knight. I want to help you murder the guy. So wait until I get made a knight too. And then we'll kill him together. And that's twice as bad, just in case we were under any illusions that Sir Gawain might possibly be contemplating some honorable, knightly duel here. Geharis saying, no, I want in on this action, right? Um, I want to, um, I want to be, and let's not kill him now, duh, right? Uh, Because if we did so, we would trouble this high feast, right? It'll probably make a scene if we draw our swords and off King Pelinor right here and now, right? So let's wait until he's outside the court, and then we'll kill him. And once I'm a knight too, and I mean, this is, yes, this is premeditated murder on the part of Gawain and Geharis. Um... David Attlee wants to know why it's necessary to be a knight to murder someone. You know, I don't know. Um, maybe I, 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 yeah, Patricia's wondering exactly the same thing. You'd sort of think, right? I mean, if he's going to act dishonorably, then yeah, like why stick it not having been knighted first? Um, I don't, um, I don't. I don't, I'm not sure I'm following Geharis' line of reasoning here. Um, uh, unless he's actually asking, he's presumably pretty young, Geharis is. Um, remember, you know, Gawain is, is the, the younger generation, uh, 
he is the he is the son of 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 uh, uh, Morgaz. He's the the son of um, the uh, Arthur's older half sister, right? Um, so there's a little bit of you know she's older than Arthur is, and and uh, you know Arthur begot. Gawain's youngest brother, Mordred, right? So, uh, you know, there's some old generational things going on here. Gawain is closer to, to Arthur's age, certainly, than the rest of them. Um, but, um, um, but anyway, yeah, he, he, so it might just be, uh, like, you know, I'd wait until I, uh, um, wait till I, uh, am, am, like, old enough to come with you, essentially. Um, uh, now, it's possible, see, Matthew says it's possible that his elevation to knighthood might offer him more legal protection than he would have had as a, as a squire. That's possible. That's possible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not really... I'm, I'm not sure of the legalities of it exactly, whether what... it's I, Is what Geharis is suggesting cunning? I don't know if it's cunning. Um, if it's just a formality, is it a dishonorable thing, but he wants to, are they convincing themselves that they, they, they clearly believe they're doing a good thing, right? They are taking vengeance for the death of their father. They consider Pelinor the murderer of their father, and they're going to take vengeance on him. They don't have any shame about, they don't seem to feel any shame about this. They don't, uh, uh, they, you know, they are grudging, uh, exactly, uh, Crystal Eowyn, as you're suggesting, they're going to murder him because he is put to great worship. Yeah, he's being praised. This guy, the murderer of their father, that's offensive, right? That the murderer of their father, now he what, didn't murder him. He killed him in battle. It was totally clean, right? Um, and yet uh, they, uh, they're they grudging this, right? But again, they seem to... Um, they seem to be fine with this fact. So I'm thinking with Geharis, it's not about legal cunning and more about, he considers it a knightly act to take vengeance for his father. And so he wants to wait until he's a knight and then they will take knightly vengeance, which will look to everyone else like murder. But they, Geharis and Gawain seem to have a little more slippery moral code on this subject than other people here. Um, um, Stephen is wondering how loud they're speaking. I don't think they're speaking openly for everybody um, to hear. Uh, can Merlin and Arthur hear them? Stephen wants to know. Well, Merlin already knows, right? So, uh, uh, no... Uh, uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure he's already carved this in gold letters somewhere, actually. Knowing he did. That's the thing that they found when they woke up that morning, when Balin wakes up in the morning and find, and they, they buried the dude who got stabbed through with the spear and he wakes up and it, and there it is right about uh, Gawain killing <laughs> King Pelinor. I'm pretty sure that is written already in gold letters on that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Well, it is the job of squires to fight. So it's not exactly like the estates. So the question is, is it, uh, is it like it's not the job of squires to fight? That's what knights do. Yep, yeah, squires do too. They can too. They certainly do in battle. Like if you're having a, if you're like engaging in a huge battle, squires fight also. Um, 
and we'll see we'll see Geharis as Gawain's uh, uh, as Gawain's squire um, fighting alongside him under certain circumstances, but not under others, right? Um, but um, so Jeffrey, it's not exactly it's not it's not quite as 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 hard and fast as that, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, we'll see, we'll see. We'll I hope to get there. Anyway. Um, but a thing I can't forbear to mention. Sir Gawain, this is shocking. Shocking. And this is ten times more shocking that this is coming out of the lips of Sir Gawain as anybody else. Uh, if you've read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, you know that Sir Gawain is the mirror of chivalry, right? If you look over all of Arthurian literature pre-Mallory, right, Sir Gawain is the pinnacle. He is the number one knight, right? Um, So when you go, if you, like, look back over the whole scope of Arthurian literature, right, in, like, early Celtic, like in in the Mabinogian and stuff, in early Celtic Arthurian stories, K is the is the number one guy, right? But then Kay gets supplanted very emphatically by Sir Gawain, primarily I think thanks to Chrétien de Troyes. But in the French tradition, in sort of the High Middle Ages, um, uh, uh, in the Arthurian stories, Sir Gawain is like the vast majority of Arthurian stories are about the adventures of Sir Gawain, and he is almost always depicted as the great like the 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 highest exemplar of knightly honor right um this is uh this is a an established thing right so when gawain comes in when sir gawain comes in it, it, it's like oh goodness what is it like um I don't know. I mean, the expectations that the audience has. I'm trying to think of a good example, a good modern parallel. I can't think of a really good one. But as soon as Sir Gawain steps onto the scene here, all of the audiences are going to be like, oh, "It's him! It's Sir Gawain! Okay, the great knight has come! Right, this the one who's going to be clearly this is going to he's going to be the hero of the whole story, right?" Um. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was trying to, I was trying to think, several of you were suggesting, uh, uh, it would be like Batman pulling out a gun, uh, something like that. Worse than that, though. I think it's worse than that. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's not bad, I'm, but I'm saying I think it's worse than that. Um, it would probably, it would have to be, I don't know, um, you know, Jeffrey, that's actually not a bad, not a bad parallel. Actually, uh, if uh, if you're telling a story of the revolution of the American Revolution and you have George Washington acting like Benedict Arnold, yes, it would be almost that shocking. It would be almost that shocking. Um, yes, could <laughs> both uh, Matthew Hirschenroder and Mike Moore at the same time said 
Captain America uh, being Hydra. Yeah, yeah, sure. Something like that. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, it would be very much like that. Um, we're going to tell you the story of the Marvel Universe, and then Captain America turns out to have been Hydra all along. Like It would be that shocking. Um, anyway, so that Gawain is not only not the number one knight, but that he's going to, that he's, his first action is to contemplate murder in vengeance for his father, tells you where we are, right? Maori is making a declaration which is practically a declaration of war on Sir Gawain. Um, he is make he is putting up a, a poster on the wall right here saying, this is not the Arthurian story that you're expecting, right? This, I think, is a huge deal because so far, what he's mostly been doing is compiling stuff, right? He's been putting together the different legends and, and saying, I'm going to make this sort of the, the, the definitive version. This is one of the first places, huge things, where he's like, but this version of the story is going to be different from almost every other version of the story. Um, so it's a really, it's a really big deal. Um, uh, Deborah wants to know any idea why he would deviate so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, um, he would deviate so much because Lancelot's his guy, right? Uh, Lancelot's his guy. Uh, he's, that's clear from Maori. Very early. Merlin's already stated it, right? Perfectly obviously. Uh, Merlin's, Merlin has said, Lancelot's the guy. Um, it's not Gawain. Um, and it's pretty clear. It's not Gawain. Gawain's not even in the running. Um, but, um, oh, one other small note. You will notice that the vast majority of the time I will call him Gawain. And some of you may be asking, I thought it was pronounced Gawain, right? Let me, let me explain. When you are reading it in the alliterative poem, you'll notice that I always say Sir Gawain and the Green Knight when I refer to that poem, because it is very clear that in that poem, the stress is on the first syllable because it alliterates, right? You have the stress on the first syllable because that initial G is the important part of it, right? It is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, because that's how the whole intonation of that poem works. But the French Gawain is just as clearly Gawain, because it's because the emphasis in the French poems is on the terminal rhyme, and Gawain's name is very often used as a rhyming word. Uh, the stress is on the second syllable because it's the ain that matters, um, and so that's what you hear most. So when you're talking about your, uh, so this is not like Gilgalad, Nancy. Gilgalad is me pronouncing it wrong and not being ashamed of that because it's how I always pronounced it when I was a kid. Um, this is actually like there are two different pronunciations for it depending on what language you're reading it in, essentially. And so I tend to be, uh, I'm, I will call him, uh, Kitriana was saying the same thing about Gilgalad. Um, I will call him Gawain all through the book, unless I screw up. Um, because it is very clear that Lancelot is using the French tradition here. Um, so it is the French Gawain that we should be thinking about uh, when we are reading uh, uh, his Gawain. Um, he has very little to do with Sir Gawain 
from Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Um, so uh, we just have to, uh, um, we just have to reconcile ourselves to that. He's Gawain. He's obviously the French Gawain, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's how it needs to be. Okay, let's go. Let's leave treacherous Sir Gawain behind. We're finally to the wedding. Hooray! Right so, as they sate, there came running in. So this is in the middle of the wedding feast, right? This is how you know it's officially, like the wedding is the wedding is, is official because you've got uh, something weird happening. Right so, as they sate there, came running in a wheat heart into the hall and a wheat bratchet next him. And thirty couple of black running hoondes came after with a great cry. And the heart went about the round table, and as he went by the sideboard is, the bratchet ever bought him by the buttock and pulled out a piece. Ouch! Where, where through the heart lope a great leap and overthrew a knecht that sat at the sideboard. And therewith the knecht arose and took up the bratchet... And so went forth out of the hall, and took his horse, and rode his way with the bratchet. Reeked so, come in the laddie on a wheat palfrey, and cried aloud unto King Arthur, and said, Sir, suffer me not to have this despite, for the bratchet is mine, that the knight hath laid away. I may not do therewith, said the king. So with this there come a knight riding all armed on a great horse, and took the laddie away with force with him. And ever she cried, and mad great dole. So when she was gone, the king was glad, for she mad such a noise. <laughs> That's one of my favorite sentences in the whole first section. <laughs> king Arthur's a simple man. <laughs> when she was gone, the king was glad, for she mad such a noise. Well, I'm glad to be rid of her. I thought the screaming would never end. <laughs> Man, I think, I think uh, uh, he's missing the point just a little bit here, as Merlin is keen to point out. Nice, said Merlin. Ye may not leave it so, this adventure so likely, for these adventures must be brought to an end, other else it will be disworship to you and your feast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, Deborah. When you when you see when a lady is dragged off by a knight against her will right in front of you, if your reaction is ah, peace and quiet at last, you're probably you know not looking at it from the right angle. Um, <laughs> Stephen thinks this is a really good argument. Uh, this passage is a really good argument in support of the no King Arthur is just as just dumb as a brick, uh, and that's why he doesn't do anything with the stuff that Merlin tells him. Um, yeah. So okay. Um, this is a great marvel. Now there are greater marvels, like like nothing, nothing. Uh, Nothing absolutely supernatural happened. This is just weird. It's not. It's not uh, uh, technically marvelous, um, but uh, no miracles happen. No magic has appeared to occur. But it's striking 
Anyway, right? So we've got this white heart and a white bratchet, a white hound that's pursuing it and biting its buttocks. And then it leaps over and knocks a knight over. And that knight takes the bratchet for some reason and runs off with it. And then the lady's like, dude, my bratchet. And then another knight comes in and takes her away and she screams. And so, okay. So the moral of the story is we have three quests. Right. We need to send knights out to resolve the quest. So what this is, um, Arthur's <laughs> misunderstanding this about as radically as you can misunderstand this. But Arthur, so, so Arthur doesn't get it. But what's happened here? This is a mandate. It's a kind of test or something. Right. Um, you're 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 supposed to. Um, uh <laughs> Dora Stroke says, sometimes I refuse to have breakfast until I see a Marvel. It's a weight loss program. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a good plan, actually. We should should try that. Um, uh, Yeah, okay. Um, So, there's the proper responses. And the proper response is, we have to send three knights out after this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Boomful is having sympathy uh, for King Arthur's DM, right? You know, the uh, you, you yes, Boomful, I can imagine the dungeon master face palming if somebody is like, oh, well, thank goodness she's gone. She was really noisy. Um, you didn't get it. Um, Bruce says this marvel seems like it should have an allegorical interpretation. Yeah, it does seem almost like that. Now, it's not clear what it is, and Merlin doesn't explain it, right? Um but there are the three elements, right? So we have the deer, which was being hunted, but it wasn't caught. And we don't know where it came from anyway. And then we have the hound, which was about to catch that deer. So it's associated with that in some way. Um, but before it could uh, finish taking bites out of the buttocks of said deer, it's in itself taken and run off. So somebody has run off with this lady's hound. So we need to resolve that issue. And then the lady herself. But but see, don't think... If you're thinking of this only in terms of somebody has to right these wrongs, right? Um, we can't just let bratchets be stolen right in front of us and do nothing about it. No, sir. If a lady's bratchet is stolen, then by golly, the knights of the round table shall sally forth and shall not rest until all bratchets are restored to their proper owners. It's not about, it's not a dog ownership question, first and foremost, right? Um, this is a marvel. It does exactly as you say, Bruce, the suggestion is, um, uh, uh, the suggestion is that they there's a meaning to this, right? That needs to be resolved, or it's uh, and it's 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 not just about uh, bringing, you know, uh, criminals of various degrees to. Uh, justice or something like that. Um, James, a palfrey is a kind of horse. Uh, it's a riding horse. Um, it's a, a light riding horse. Um, so like a, the kind of horse you would ride uh, just like for pleasure, uh, for light travel, not, not, not a war horse. Um, ladies often ride, ride on palfreys, uh, but men also can ride on palfreys when they're not like in armor, basically. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and that's why it's usually associated with noble ladies, as several of you are saying, uh, because the, the ladies are never wearing armor. Right. But but men do sometimes ride palfreys. Uh, I, if that sort of. Uh, well, there's nothing explicitly effeminate about riding a palfrey apart from the fact that it means you're not in armor, which means, you know, like you might as well be naked uh, as a uh, as a knight. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The sideboards, Crystal A.O. And yeah, so the so the, that's the the where the like food is set out on the sideboards, uh, the little tables along the side. Yeah. Um, OK, so. Three knights, of course, are set off on these three quests. Sir Gawain is set off on the quest of the white deer. Uh, uh, Sir Tor is our newly knighted Sir Tor is set off on the quest of the white bratchet. And King Pellinor is set off on the quest of the knight and the lady. And let's start with Gawain. Um, I don't want to, oh yeah, there's no quest for the 30 black hounds. James, you're right. The 30 black hounds and uh, somebody else, uh, Deborah was asking about this too. Yeah. No explanation about the black hounds. Although white deer pursued by 30 black hounds and one white hound, Bruce, that sounds like the most allegorical element of the whole thing. Right. Um, and believe me, by the time we get to the quest for the Holy Grail, that's obviously going to have an allegorical meaning. Like if, if this were... Oh, what would it mean? Probably the deer would be Christ. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Cover says if the deer were black instead of white, then it could be the heart of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, it could. But it's not. Anyway, okay, never mind. But the 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 point is, Bruce, you're absolutely right. That's a that's a correct impulse. That's a good impulse to think about this allegorically. But nobody, not even Merlin, actually does that here, right? We're not there yet. The world isn't ready for that kind of allegory to be enacted all over the place. The world's going to get that way later on, but it's not there yet. Um, okay. Gawain sets off after the deer. And as Sir Gawain, Walda followed after, there stood a knicht on the other side. Uh, there's a river there, right? And sighed, Sir Knicht, come not over this, come not over after this heart, but if thou wilt just with me. I will not fail as for that, said Sir Gawain, to follow the quest that I am in. And so he, and, and so mod his horse swim over the water. And anon they gate their glaives and ran to Gidders full hard, but Gawain smote him off his horse and turned his horse, and then he bade him yield him. Nay, sighed the Knecht, not so, for though ye have the better of me on horseback, I pray thee, valiant Knecht, a licht on foot, and match we together with our swerdes. What is your name? said Sir Gawain. Sir, my name is Allardine of the Out Isles. Then either dressed their shields and smote together, but Sir Gawain smote him so hard through the helm that it went to the brine, and the knight fell down dead. Ah, said Geharis, that was a meekty stroke of a young knight. That was awesome. Okay, so, uh, 
Right, David Erbach says, so Arthur struggles to find 150 knights for his round table, yet the countryside seems littered with rogue knights at every bridge and crossing. Yeah, yeah, no, this is exactly how it happens. So this is a really good model of like what happens when you go out on a quest like this. Like, so notice several things here. First, Gawain runs into a bunch of people who are just like, uh, you can't come this way unless you're going to fight with me. And he's like, okay, like it's what you do. This is a part of the normal thing. But notice also how word of this has already passed. Everybody knows like he's chasing the deer at speed, right? So they've just left King Arthur's court and he's, you know, going a great wallop more than a pass after the deer, right? And he meets a guy who's like, well, I'm chasing that deer because I heard this is a marvel for King Arthur's wedding and I want to achieve it myself. And Gawain is like, no, that is my quest, right? He runs into the two brothers who are fighting over the quest to go for after the deer, right? And then he's like, I'll fight both of you. And they're like, uh, we're already kind of all wounded because we've been fighting each other uh, and we feel sheepish about that now. And he's like, then fine, consider yourselves both vanquished by me and go back to Arthur's court and tell them that I beat you both up. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, this is just kind of what happens. News travels really fast and we don't ask questions about this kind of thing. Pam, great question. So gate their glaivers. Uh gate. That just means they, they, they got them. They picked them up. They gate their glaivers. Their glaivers are their spears, their lances. Um, so anon they guide their glivers and run to Gitter's full heart. So, uh, uh, and soon, as soon as he swam across the water, his horse swam across the water, uh, they got their spears, they got their, their lances and they jousted together. So there's lots of like, you know, the other knight is waiting patiently for him to cross the river and then like to get himself together. And, and, uh, um, uh, I, and then they, uh, they, they, they come together and joust totally, totally natural. Um, but, um, so Gawain's stroke down into the brain of this otherwise fairly courteous knight is almost certainly a good thing. Gaharis loves it, right? Oh, that was awesome, right? I can't wait to tell everybody about that michty stroke of a young knicht, right? So that's, that's probably good. And Devra, I also was picturing Wesley and Inigo at the Cliffs of Insanity, by the way, when I was talking about that. Um... How do you dress your shield? Um, uh, it's 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 not about its clothing. Uh, you address your shield. So uh, uh, then either dressed their shield is so they like got their shields and dressed them towards the other person. So like uh, if you're facing me and I bring my shield between me and you, then I am addressing my shield towards you. Um, so, um, you know, again, they're just like getting... Just like they, they're getting their glavas, right? They're getting their spears. They're, get, they're getting all ready, making sure everything is uh, is set to go. And then they start. This is like an orderly combat that they're doing here. And it's, again, Gawain is he's a good knight. I'm, that is, he's skilled, right? Uh, he's powerful. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's proving himself. And this is how you do it, right? This is how you move up the rankings um, in... Uh, uh, in in the Arthurian world. Okay. But things don't always go that well. So Gawain gets to the castle. So the, the white heart goes into a castle, right? And he goes in and kills it, 
Well, he kills the hounds and uh, what? Well, okay, so he's got hounds. Also, chase because how you chase the deer, right? So he's got hounds, and this knight comes out and kills his hounds, right? Because they're killing the deer, and because apparently this deer belongs to this guy. This deer is like a pet of this guy, um, who's like, dude, why are you killing my deer? And uh, and then, but he kills Gawain's hounds, and now Gawain is mad about how this dude killed his hounds, so they fight. Deborah says the dogs aren't having a good night here. No, no, they are not having a good... This is not a good... Uh, 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 this this whole series of episodes um, not approved uh, by PETA at all. But anyway, uh, so at the last, Sir Gawain smote so hard that the Knecht fell to the earth, and then he cried mercy and yielded him and besought him as he was a gentle Knecht to salve his leaf. Thou shalt die, said Sir Gawain, for slaying of my hoondes. I will make amendes, said the Knecht, to my power. But Sir Gawain would no mercy have, but unlossed his helm to have stricken off his head. Reeked so come his laddie, that is the laddie of the Knecht, not the laddie of Gawain. Uh, Reeked so come, sometimes pronouns are a challenge. Reeked so come his laddie out of a chamber and fell over him, that is over the knight on the ground, not Gawain. And so he smote off her head by misfortune. Alas, said Geharis, that is foul and shamefully done, for that sham shall never from you. Also ye shall give mercy unto them that ask mercy, for a connect without mercy is without worship. So Sir Gawain was sore astonished of the death of this fire laddie, that he wist not what he did, and said unto the connect, Arise, I will give thee mercy. Nigh, nigh, said the connect, I talk no first of thy mercy now, for thou hast slain with villainy my love and my laddie, that I love it best of all earthly thing. So you've killed the man's deer, now you kill his lady. Um, whew. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Mike points out that we're more comfortable with the decapitation of the lady than we are of the rape uh, of the woman before. I agree. It's It's a little more... I mean, it's not like this is nice, right? But I agree. I find the rape of the woman, you know, Sir Tor's mom more unsettling than the decapitation of random ladies. Um, but don't let's uh, miss the major point here, right? This is bad. Very, very bad, right? And it's not like you didn't need to decapitate the lady to know that you were doing wrong. Like, we, we this is the decap- the accidental decapitation of this lady is only of a manifestation of the bad choice that Gawain has made. It's almost like a punishment, right? Um, it's almost like a, an ensample of his badness, right? He has acted very unknightly, as his younger brother and squire, Geharis, tells him, right? He has acted very unknightly, slaying, going to slay this knight with villainy, Right? He's acting like a villain. He's acting he's acting unknightly by not giving mercy when the knight yielded. He yielded. And Gawain was gonna kill him anyway. Why? Because he was upset about his dogs getting killed. And the knight is like, I will make amends to my power. He's like, I'm, he's offering to pay a wear guild for the death of the dogs, right? 
Um, and uh, no, oh, Mike, he unlaced his victim's helmet. Uh, you generally do that. It's almost impossible to decapitate somebody. Um, I don't think there is a single example. I might be wrong, but I can't remember a single example of a knight being decapitated in his helm. Like somebody's head and helmet going spinning off into the distance. Lots of people get decapitated. You can get, like, cloven. It's possible to cleave a helm, right? Uh, like like he just, like, poor Brian of the Out Isles, right, who just got his brain severed uh, by Sir Gawain, who bashed him in, right? Uh, and that's how King Lot died, too. Remember King Pelinor uh, uh, bisected King Lot's head, right, while he was still helmed in battle. Um, so that's that's totally fine, right? That happens quite a bit. Um, but you don't decapitate somebody. Like, you just... That, that never happens. So if you're going to decapitate somebody, you've got to take their helmet off. So generally, this is why decapitation is... That's... Decapitation is execution. Um, you don't... Because you have to, like, have them at your mercy and take off their helmet in order to... Uh, uh, to, that's to, in order to decapitate them. So it's, uh, yeah. Um, so Pam, when it says that he, uh, that by misfortune, he decapitates the lady, um, it wasn't that he did it in the heat of the moment. He, he was, he was going for the knight. So like what we're supposed to imagine here, he unlaces the knight's helm, right? And then he's going, he's swinging for the knight's neck. And as he's swinging for the knight's neck, the lady is running in from the other room. And so imagine this lady in slow motion running, being like, no, and she's jumping in, presumably to like wrap her arms around the neck of her lover in order to save his life because that normally works like that's a thing that you do if you're a lady you know you're like i know you wouldn't kill a lady so i'm gonna cling on to him so that you can't kill him right so she's trying to interpose herself deliberately between the night and the, because she doesn't think he's gonna do it right she thinks it's gonna gonna be a deterrent but he like doesn't see her or anyway so he's already in mid-stroke to decapitate this knight, and he takes off the lady's head instead right um, uh, so, uh, um, yeah, anyway, that's, so that's what, that's what happens here. <clears throat> it was an accident in the sense that it wasn't the lady's neck he was aiming for. He was deliberately trying to decapitate somebody, but it wasn't her. Um, but again, what happens here is that he's, he should not have been, this was bad. He was acting deeply dishonorably to refuse mercy to him. So, it is, in a sense, fitting that he commits a horrible crime with that swing, because that swing was a felonious swing. Anyway, it was a it wasn't a dolorous stroke, but it was a felonious stroke uh, that he was uh, um, that he was uh, that he was dealing there. Um, so yes, Mike, we have a definite trend of Gawain being vindictive and unforgiving. We see that with King Pelinar. With his dad, where it seems slightly justifiable, right? I mean, okay, he's upset his father was killed. He wants to take vengeance on his father's killer. That's not unknown, right? Maybe not totally admirable, especially if he's going to wait for him outside the court and, and murder him with, you know, two on one or whatever. Like, it sounds sketchy. But again, 
with within the pale of honor, conceivably, right? Or at least it could be done in, in an honorable way. Uh, this, you know, I'm going to decapitate you despite your asking for mercy because you killed my hounds. That's not, um, that's not okay. That's really not okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and he gets in trouble. After this, four knights come out and attack him uh, and are going to kill him or take him. And, and this is, by the way, this is where Geharis fights. So when the four knights come out and attack Gawain, Geharis joins in and the two of them are taken uh, by the four knights. Um, so there you see, like, Gawain, Geharis doesn't ever enter into any of the single combats that uh, Gawain is in. Nor is he going to take any on himself, right? He's not traveling. You know, when they're traveling together, he's not like, and next one is my turn, right? No, he's the squire. Gawain is the knight. But when it's a four-on-one melee and you're the squire, you join in, apparently. At least Geharis does. Um, and that seems like it's probably okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, but then this other lady comes in and says, no, don't kill him because uh, he's Arthur's kinsman. And so she departed and told the four Knictes how the prisoner was King Arthur's nephew, and his name is Sir Gawain, King Lotte's son of Orkney. So they gaff him leave, and took him the the hearty's head with him, because it was in the quest. And then they delivered him under this promise, that he should bear the dead lady with him on this manner. The head of her was hanged about his neck, and the whole body of her before him on his horse mine. Rixo rode for he rode forth unto Camelot, and anon as he was come, Merlion did mock King Arthur uh, did mock King Arthur that Sir Gawain was sworn to tell of his adventure, and how he slew the laddie, and how he would give no mercy unto the Kinect, where through the laddie was slain. Merlin, of course, already knows the whole story and has just spoiled the whole thing. Make sure he tells you all about everything I'm just about to already tell you. Fun, the king and the queen were greatly displeased with Sir Gawain for the slaying of the laddie, and there, by ordinance of the queen, there was set a quest of laddies upon Sir Gawain. A quest, like an inquest. She has, uh, she has arranged a jury of ladies to sit on Sir Gawain's case. Okay, this is a serious... I mean, the killing of the lady, this is a big deal. Okay, uh, was said a quest of ladies upon Sir Gawain, and they judged him forever while he lived to be with all ladies and to feet for her quarrels, and ever that he should be courteous and never to refuse mercy to him that asketh mercy. Thus was Sir Gawain sworn upon the four that asketh mercy. Thus, sorry, thus was Sir Gawain sworn upon the four evangelists that he should never be against Lottie, the gentlewoman, but if he feeked for a Lottie and his adversary feeketh for another. It's the only situation under which he could uh, uh, be against a lady. Okay, so... Yeah, so Sir Gawain um, is sentenced. Notice he's sentenced to three things, right? Um, thing number one, or rather two of the three things are 
Do what you're freaking supposed to do, you know? Like, act like a knight. Uh, don't kill anybody who asks for mercy and be courteous for crying out loud, right? Those are two of the things that he's sentenced to. But the other thing is that he, he's to do this sort of penance. He's to be the servant of ladies his whole life, right? Always, as long as you live, uh, be with all lotties and fight for their quarrels, right? Never, ever be again. You've got to make it up to womankind, right, for the killing of this lady. You put yourself against this lady, whether it was by accident or not. You put yourself against this lady. You killed her unrightfully. Um, you've got to be on the side of ladies forevermore. <laughs> Mike Morse's cowards' wives are fair game. <laughs> oh, come on, Mike. Don't bring that up again. Um yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mike Moore calls this adventure Sir Gawain and the Performance Review. <laughs> yeah, he does not get good marks on his performance review here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rachel points out that it's interesting that the idea of an unbiased jury does not seem to be in question here. No, 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 no. There is no issue of an unbiased jury here. Um, this is a very partial journey. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Sir Gawain's first quest, and he does not, distinctly, does not cover himself in glory. Uh, and yes, if you're... Um, um, no, Joe, they don't... The ladies don't have to follow him around. He has to report back. He has to report back to the queen and to the ladies uh, in order to, you know, uh, explain himself and show that he's abiding by this. Um, there's definitely going to be uh, uh, further uh, performance reviews, no question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> David Atley says, does this mean if Morgan Le Fay asked Gawain to kill Arthur, he would have to do it? Well, that would be an interesting day, wouldn't it? Um, no, uh, to fight for a lady's quarrel is not the same. That means to take a lady's side when she... So if there's a quarrel between... So if someone else is doing some harm to a lady and she's saying, please, I need somebody to defend me, he's signing himself up for that in perpetuity. That's that's the intent of the fighting for their quarrels, right? He can never fight against a lady. That doesn't mean hand-to-hand. <laughs> that means uh, if, you know, there's a quarrel going on and there's a lady on one side and there's a man on the other side, uh, you know, and she is protesting something that he's doing, he can never side with the guy against the woman. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yep. Yeah, Bruce was saying we were talking a few weeks ago about what standard we could judge characters in this book by. This seems to be a good statement of a standard internal to this text. Totally agree, Bruce. Um, this is a really good example of it. I mean, if we want a moment when we get a very, I mean, literally a judgment, right, on some of the actions here, there is no question. Um, the assessment of Gawain's actions is is very explicit here, right? We are not left to guess uh, to what extent and on what grounds, um, uh, and on what grounds uh, uh, this is uh, condemned, right? I won't do much with Sir Tor's quest, and it's getting late anyway. Um, 
but I, we can talk about Sertor a little bit here. Uh, I think this is my only Sertor one, isn't it? Yes. This is my only Sertor passage, uh, because this is a... Uh, Sertor's quest is... I mean, he does the same thing, right? He rides out, and there are other knights that he meets with one-on-one, and he fights them, and he overcomes them. Uh, the only thing truly interesting about uh, Sir Tor's adventures is the random dwarf that shows up. Sir Tor's quest after the White Bratchet introduces us to our very first random unexplained dwarf. He will not be the last random unexplained dwarf that we are going to get. If you're wondering how the dwarf knows all the things that he knows, don't. Dwarves just know this kind of thing. And um, like if you're wondering where he came from and, you know, why he wants to attach himself to Sir Tor, just stop it. Uh, it's like, we don't need to know that. This is just kind of how dwarfs behave. So let's just move on. Uh, no, seriously, like it's never going to get explained. If you start troubling yourself about where every random dwarf comes from, why they do what they do and how they know what they know, you're never going to get anywhere. <laughs> reading this book so just trust me it's fine um okay so uh but the dwarf is with him now right the dwarf is traveling with sir tor after they've gotten over the whole i'm gonna beat your horse in the head thing but they have a rough start sir tor and the dwarf but they get over it and 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 they're fine um but this is the this is the the achievement of the bratchet quest therewith sir tor aleked and took the dwarf his glaive. So he hands his spear to the dwarf. The dwarf is like squiring for him now. And so he come to the wheat pavilion. He saw three damsels lie in it on a pallet sleeping. Okay. And so he went unto t'other pavilion and found a laddie lying in it sleeping. But therein was the white bratchet that bayed at him fast. And Than, Sir Tor, took up the bratchet, and went his way, and took it to the dwarf. And with the noise, the noise of the bratchet, presumably, the laddie come out of the pavilion, and all her damsels, and said, Will ye talk my bratchet from me? Ye, said Tor, this bratchet have I socked from King Arthur's court hither. Well, said the laddie, Sir Knecht, ye shall not go far with her, but that ye will be met with, and grieved. I shall abide what adventure that cometh by the grass of God. And so mounted upon his horse, and passed on his way toward Camelot. And of course, he is going to be grieved. That is to say, there's going to be another knight. The knight, I think, the knight who stole the bratchet in the first place, who is going to follow after him and challenge him, but it's going to be fine, right? Tor just hands the bratchet to the dwarf. The dwarf holds the bratchet. Tor defeats the knight and takes the bratchet back to the court. And pretty much everybody lives happily ever after. Maybe, including the dog, or maybe not the dog. I still don't know whose dog the bratchet was because the bratchet seems to belong to the lady who gets taken off by the knight whom King Pelinor is pursuing. And that lady turns out to be Nimue, I think. No, I'm sure of that. Um, that lady turns out to be Nimue. And it's her dog? Or at least she said it was her dog. Because she was the one who comes in and does all the yelling that Arthur objects to. And is like, my Bratchet! He took my Bratchet! And then she gets hauled away. Right? So, 
assuming that that dog really did belong to that lady and not to this lady off of whose bed Sir Tor takes it, right? We've got all these sleeping damsels and here's Sir Tor just taking the dog, right? So she protests, are you know, are you will you take my bratchet from me? Yep, that's just what I'm going to do because it's my quest and I'm supposed to do that. Um but the, both the lady and the Bratchet do make it back to the court. So if, assuming that Nimue really did own the Bratchet first, I guess, then they get reunited. So we do have a dog who lives happily ever after in today's class. Yeah, so Megan, I'm, I agree. I think the knight took the dog as a love token. So she's calling it her Bratchet because the knight gave it to her, right? But it was not his Bratchet to give away. It was Nimue's Bratchet, unless she was lying about that. Which ladies of the lake who come to the court and say stuff turn out to be lying often. Like both of the ladies. Uh, well, this if Balin was to be believed. But, um, yeah, I don't really... <laughs> Dolores Stroke is thinking that the Bratchet is the cowherd, cowherd's wife's stolen greyhound. Like I said, I, I can't get away from that, right? I mean, we have this... I Like, the law of the conservation of Bratchets would suggest that, like, this... If this were a Dickens novel, then this Bratchet would absolutely turn out to be that Bratchet that was taken away, and then and we would end this... Uh, this chapter with the tri with the like you know delighted reuniting of the you know the reunion of Ares the cowherd's wife and the Bratchet, um, but you know I, I don't. Uh, it would be a pretty old dog, Catriona. But see, we could do a combination, right? It would be like uh, like a Dickens novel meets the Odyssey, right? With the old dog who reunites with the master and then kills over dead. It, it, it could work. I, I think this absolutely could work. Um, but um, uh, but we'll see. So uh, I don't know what to do with the dog parallels. I really don't. With the is is the point only that hounds make good love tokens? I mean, is is like I mean, is a hound? the 15th century version of a box of chocolates? Is that what we're supposed to understand? Except, I guess, you know, King Pelinor's making a withdrawal instead of a deposit, as far as that's concerned. I don't know, man. I, I, I give it up. Um, I can understand... The only, the only dog story that I understand in this is Sir Gawain's, right? That hounds are valuable, and he has his... His uh, uh, his hounds chasing after the deer and gets upset when somebody comes out with a sword and starts hacking up his hounds. I know it's, you know his reaction's totally inappropriate, but I get it anyway. Um, I don't get any of the other bratchets. Um, um, yeah. Um. <laughs> Several people are agreeing with the sentiment that uh, you know I, I, giving a lady a puppy is not actually a bad move. Uh, yeah, sure. No, I, I mean, I, I, I'm down with that. That seems fine. It's also like slightly creepily symbolic in a very medieval way, right? Because the whole hunt as metaphor for the amorous pursuit, right? Where the lady is like the hound and you are like the hunter. Um, 
therefore like to give her a hunting hound is kind of a like you know i'm into you like i'm kind of coming after you in a like sort of creepy but hopefully not too creepy hunter kind of way right um it kind of works within the symbolism too uh and that's always fun all right I should stop. I was going to do King Pelinor too. I don't have too much to say about King Pelinor uh, and his quest uh, for the lady who turns out to be not a very good idea. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll do that. We'll do the War with the Five Kings, which is very short, and then we'll do Arthur and Acalon at least for next time. <laughs> we'll get through this book eventually. I promise. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to start being so much more efficient. You'll see. It's absolutely going to happen. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. I will see you guys next week. Bye now.